How many of you guys have read um, The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis? Anybody? Anybody? Good. I'm glad to see the Brits have read it. Um, we, had a, we had an English woman in the morning service. She hadn't read. I couldn't believe she hadn't read C.S. Lewis. Uh, everything C.S. Lewis ever wrote. But uh, you may recall that uh, Screwtape Letters, it's a, it's a book of, uh, comprised of letters of advice from Uncle Screwtape who is a senior demon and mentor to his nephew, uh, Wormwood, okay? And Wormwood is uh, an apprentice demon. And Wormwood has been assigned to a human being to keep him from becoming a Christian, okay? Uh, that's his job, to keep, uh, to keep his uh, patient, as he calls him, from becoming a Christian. Uh, but there's bad news. Immediately in chapter 2, the first sentence is, that the patient, the human being, has become a Christian. And this is what Screwtape writes to Wormwood. Screwtape says, I note with grave displeasure that your patient has become a Christian. He says, there is no need to despair, however. Many of these converts have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn in the enemy's camp and are now with us. All the habits of the patient, both mental and bodily, are still in our favor. And that's, that's the sentence I'm going to make much of, okay, tonight. All of the habits of the patient, both mentally and bodily, are still in our favor. Now, we understand that C.S. Lewis is talking about someone who's merely made an outward profession of faith, right? We're not talking about a born-again Christian. A born-again Christian can't ever lose his, can never lose his salvation. That's a work of God. We understand that. We understand that the, the true Christian will persevere to the end. We understand all of that. But Lewis is talking about, you know, the person who just claims to be a Christian, but they're really not. For whatever reason, they masquerade as a Christian, right? That's who Lewis is talking about. That's who Lewis is talking about here. You know, the, the term in theological terms is, and you may or may not have heard this term, is unregenerate church member. They belong to a church, but it's just kind of a religious thing. They don't really love Christ. They don't really... Uh, build their life around Christ. They're not really a disciple of Christ. And that's what Lewis is talking about here. But what I want to say is this sentence, all the habits of the patient, both mental and bodily, are still in our favor. Man, that applies to a born-again believer. All of you born-again Christians in here, you know that's true. You know that's true. When I became a Christian at the age of 28, man, I had to unlearn everything I had learned in the world. How many of you have had this experience? When you become a Christian, you have to unlearn everything because the world has taught us in every possible way. They've taught us the wrong way. They've not taught us the way of God. So you almost have to unlearn everything and learn God's way, you know, from, from who God is and, and uh, from His Word, from who we are. Uh, it, it, it impacts uh, our marriages, our kids, the way we relate to other people, our jobs, our money. It's how we view everything. We have to unlearn the world's way and learn God's way. C.S. Lewis is right. The world has successfully indoctrinated every one of us. And if you don't believe that the world has indoctrinated you, then you're a perfect illustration of how subtle and effective the world's indoctrination is. The world, it's so easy to just think like the world. But what does God tell His children to do? You know? Don't think like the world. And that's why he calls, us, he calls us to come into His Word and to study His Word. 
God says in James chapter 4, verse 4, friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Romans 8, 7, the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. 1 John 2, 15, if we love the world, the love of the Father is not in us. So if we're born from above, if we're born of God, we've un- we understand this, we've had this experience. We are in the process of unlearning what the world has taught us and we're in the Word of God, we're submitting to the Holy Spirit, and we're learning the ways, the ways of God. Paul told the Romans, he said, Do not be conformed to this world, but what? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Romans chapter 12, uh, verse 2. I like how the message paraphrases Romans 12 too. It says, Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without thinking. Man, this is an epidemic in the modern church. This is an epidemic particularly where I'm from. Now, I don't know what it's like where you're from, but from America, uh, this is documented. You guys have heard, many of you Americans have heard of George Barna. He's a sociologist and researcher. He did a survey of 131 attitudes, beliefs, values, and behaviors between a believer and an unbeliever. Guess what he found? No difference. Friends, that's wrong. That's not the way it ought to be. And obviously what we have is we have a lot of people calling themselves Christians who are not. The unregenerate church member. Those who are merely religious, but they don't truly know Christ. They don't truly walk with Him. They don't truly love Him. They don't build their life around Him and His words. Screwtape is right. Screwtape is right, isn't he? You know, your mental habits matter. They matter. They matter. And if the thinking hasn't changed, if the heart hasn't changed, nothing's changed. We're just religious. If the thinking doesn't change, nothing has changed. You guys know this, right? All you Christians out there, I know. It's a war. You guys know you're in a war, right? The Bible tells us we're in a war. Are you fighting that war? Let me ask you, are you, are you living your life like it's a war? Do you have that wartime mentality as John Piper talks about? Do you realize you're in a war? And are you using the weapons that you have at your disposal? I love this, this imagery that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 through 5. He says, We are destroying speculations. Don't you love that? And every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We are taking every thought, what? Captive to obedience of Christ. To the obedience of Christ. Let me ask you, Christian, is that how it is with you and Jesus? Are you taking every thought captive to obedience? This is what God's calling us to do. Not to be conformed to the world. You've got to unlearn that stuff, man. But to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, bringing every thought captive to our beautiful Lord and Savior. Are you in the war? Let me ask you, friend, are you in the war? Are you in the war? God says, my kids are to take every thought captive. So how do, we, how do we prosecute this war? By being in the Word of God? That's why we preach the Word of God. That's why we teach our children the Word of God. That's why we have men's Bible studies and women's Bible studies and young adult Bible studies and youth Bible studies. Because this is how, this is how we are not conformed to the ways of the world. We're to use our powerful God tools as... I love how the, the message paraphrases that 
that uh, Corinthians passage. We're to use our powerful God tools to smash the warped philosophies that we have unwittingly subscribed to many times, unwittingly. So what has James, James has been saying to us here in chapter 1 in the first 12 verses uh, about our thinking. And the first thing he talks about here is how we think about our trials. James chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 12. And the first thing he says to us, you know, he's writing to his dispersed flock, the 12 tribes uh, from Jerusalem. And he says, hey man, we don't think like the world thinks when it comes to our trials. We don't. We're not discouraged like the world is discouraged. We're not blown away. We're not blown over when the trial comes. We don't succumb to the natural inclination to what? Worry and whine and wring our hands. That's what the world does. James says the Christian doesn't do this. The Christian what? He counts it all joy. Let me ask you, Christian, we've been talking about this the last two weeks. Do you count it all joy when the trial comes? Why should we count it all joy? What did we talk about last week? If the trial's here, guess what? God's here. If the trial's here, God is here. God always comes to His people in the trial. And as we talked about last week, He's our vast granite fortress. I love that, man. I love that image. I've just been really jazzed about that image all week. He's my vast granite fortress. So we're not consumed by hardship. We don't fixate on the difficulty. As we talked about in our Heaven series, we look right through the difficulty. We look at God. We focus on Christ. And we can see all the way into eternity. We can look at our inheritance if we know the Word of God. So we don't get blown away when the hard thing comes. We practice the presence of God. We never give up our joy. We trust in the sovereign God who, who promises that all things are working for the good of those who love Him, those called according his, to His purpose. We think forward. We are heavenly minded. We will persevere. That's what we saw last week in verse 12 of James chapter 1. Even when we can't cry anymore, we know what David told us is true in Psalm 30. What did David say? In the morning what? Joy comes in the morning. Joy will never not come for the Christian. Joy will never not come for the Christian. And so James is teaching us here in the, in the first 12 verses, we're to think biblically about our trials. We're to have good mental habits with regard to our trial. It matters how you think. The devil knows this. Screwtape knows it. You know, if you're still thinking like the world, Screwtape's not concerned about your profession of faith either. It's like he's not concerned about this patient in the Screwtape letters. If your mental habits haven't changed, if your heart hasn't changed, he's not worried about it. He's not worried about it. He's not worried about it at all. And we come down to verse uh, 13 here. James continues this, this, uh, this message about how we think. It matters how we think. It's important how we think. Verse 13 of James 1. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. And He Himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his what? His own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. I have two favorite John Piper quotes. I'm going to share them with you. One, the first one is a, is a six-word quote. And nothing in your life is exempt from this quote. Okay? I love this quote. Human life is all about God. <laughs> I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. 
But how many of you believe that every single thing in your life is about God? You know, I think this is a real poverty in much of the church. I don't think most Christians are convinced that every single thing in their life is about God. That's what God says. Every single thing. You know, and if you're not thinking like that, if you're not thinking like that, then I, I don't think screw tape's worried about you. I don't think screw tape's worried. Human life is all about God, friends. That's a biblical assertion. That is a biblical assertion. My second uh, favorite John Piper quote, it's only four words, and it impacts every human being on the planet, every single one of us. Bad theology hurts people. Don't you love that? Bad theology hurts people. Now, what is theology? Theology is just simply the way we... It's the study of the nature of God. It's simply the way we think about God. The way we see God. What we believe to be true about God. That's what theology means. And if your theology is bad, which is to say if it's not biblical, you are hurting yourself. You are hurting your life. That's a biblical assertion. Wrong believing leads to what? Wrong what? Living. Wrong believing always leads to wrong living. Wrong thinking always leads to wrong living. It always does. If you're not eating this, if you're not digesting this, if this is not your meat and your bread, friends, you're putting yourself at risk. You're putting yourself at risk. You're putting yourself at risk. God has spoken in His Word. It's the truth about God. And oh, guess what else it is? It's the truth about you. And it's the truth about your sin. God has spoken clearly in His Word. You know, that corollary truth of really getting a glimpse of Jesus Christ. Man, if we really got a glimpse of Jesus Christ, man, we can't help but see ourselves in the light uh, that we should. Man, He's holy and lifted up and He's awesome. We won't think uh, too highly of ourselves if we catch a true glimpse of Jesus Christ. Uh, I dare say. I dare say. You know, I get jazzed up in here sometimes and, and I'll say to you, and I bet many of you have heard me say this before, I'll say to you, I don't know why there's not 10,000 people in this room or trying to crush into this room so they can hear the gospel. But you know why? You know why 10,000 people aren't trying to crush into this room? You know, the Bible tells us men hate the truth. Men don't want the truth about God and men don't want the truth about themselves. And James is, is telling us in this verse 13 here, you need to be thinking uh, biblically. You need to be thinking right about God and you need to be thinking right about yourself and right about your sin. We won't be thinking correctly about ourselves lest we are thinking correctly about God. It's the consummate inconvenient truth, right? Men don't want to know what God says about himself or about us. John said it in John chapter 3. Men love the darkness. They will not come to the light because their deeds are dark. And men love the darkness. Verses 13 to 16 here. James is reminding us that bad theology hurts people. And he pivots right here between verses 12 and Verse 13, he's been talking about, about trials, but then he kind of pivots here in verse 13. And the context here is trials. But every trial has the potential to become what? This is very important for us to understand. 
Every trial has the potential to become what? A temptation. If we're not thinking biblically about it, it has the potential to become a temptation. And that's what James is talking about here. If we respond biblically to the trial, it's a means of spiritual growth, a means of blessing. If we don't respond biblically, if we respond the way the world will respond, most likely we will fall into temptation and into sin. And this is the point that James is making. I've been in, uh, I've been in lay and vocational ministry 25 years, and I've seen this sad thing happen many times. A trial will come into a professed Christian's life and they will just get blown down and blown away. And the next thing you know, they're mad at God, which I think has to be the dumbest thing a human being could ever do is to get mad at God. I've seen this. People get mad at God. The next thing they do is because they're so hurt and things have been so hard, they fall into sin, right? And the next thing you find out is they're blaming God for everything. It's God's fault. If He hadn't let that thing happen to me, I would have never fallen into sin. I can't tell you how many times I see this and hear this. And this is what James is talking about. He says, you can't blame God, verse 13. You can't blame God for your own sin. How long has this been going on? How, how long have men and women been blaming God for their sin? Anybody? Anybody remember? Oh, Chan, what? Genesis chapter 3, right? In the garden. What did Adam say? Nah, well, it was the woman you gave me. And what did Eve say? Oh, it was the snake you made. You know, neither one of them would take responsibility and, and implicitly they blamed God. That's the way men are. That's the way fallen men think. That's the way fallen men think. You know, Adam's saying, well, what'd you give me this woman for anyway? It's her fault. Men not taking responsibility for their own sin. And I hear, you know, when I, I talk to unbelievers uh, and, and I'll talk to them about God, you know, and this is one of the things I always hear. Hey, it's all God's fault. How come the world's so messed up? It's God's fault. How come He put that tree in the garden? If He hadn't put that tree in the garden, none of this would have happened. Friends, that's how men are. Let me ask you, who are you blaming for your sin? Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something biblically here. <laughs> it's not God's fault. It's not your husband's fault. It's not your wife's fault. It's not your boss's fault. It's not your parents' fault. I don't care how messed up they were and how they raised you. It's not your parents' fault. Your sin, God is making explicitly clear, your sin is your fault. It's your fault. And God is telling us, telling us that very clearly. And what I love about it, He tells us very clearly, your sin is your fault. And he calls us over in 1 John to repentance, right? To get that cleansing and that washing. And we'll talk more about that. Talk, talk more about that in just a few minutes. So I love this emphatic statement here. Adam, you can't blame Eve. And Eve, you can't blame the snake. God says you take responsibility for your own sin. Take responsibility for your own sin. I love this emphatic statement here. God, what does it say? God, what? Cannot be tempted by evil, and God does not tempt anyone. Did you get that? Did you, did you get that straight? You know, for all, for all of us in here who are born again, we understand that the discussion's closed. Sin is not, sin is not God's fault. It's our own fault. 
It's our own fault. Okay? And I could talk at length about the holiness of God. I don't have to defend God's character. You know, God cannot be tempted by evil, and, and He Himself cannot tempt anyone. I don't have time to, to get into all that, but suffice to say, Habakkuk uh, 1.3 says, Thine eyes are too pure to approve evil, and they cannot look on iniquity. Listen, Christian friend, uh, if you call yourself a Christian tonight, here's what I want to say to you. Your sin is not God's fault, but I want you to hear this promise of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape that you may endure it. God says, not only am I not responsible for your sin, but I'll help you escape it. If you'll think biblically, if you'll practice good theology, you think right about me, you think right about yourself, you think right about your sin, hey, if you claim my promises, I'll help you get out of that. I'll help you escape your temptation. That's the promise of God. Don't ever blame God for your sin, friend. Don't ever blame God for your sin. Don't ever do that. God says, I'll give you all you need. I'll help you escape the snare. I'll help you escape the temptation. James says, we dare not blame God for our sin. Now look at verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. I love, uh, I love the Greek here because uh, if you look at these words translated carried away and enticed, it's a metaphor. It's a picture of hunting and fishing. Now, why does that, why does that animal... Why does that animal go into that trap? Because what? He wants what's in there, right? Why does that fish bite that hook, that bait? Why does that fish do that? Because he wants what's on that hook. I love this metaphor here. It's a very powerful metaphor here. So let's just be real blunt and real honest. Why do you sin? Because you want to. I mean, honestly. We sin because sin is in us. Even the born-again believer. Paul talks about the struggle he has in Romans chapter 7. We'll talk about that in just a few minutes. But I love the Greek verb here. It says to be drawn by an inward power. To be drawn by an inward power. And that's what James is talking about here. That lust, that's our own lust. It's not some ubiquitous generic lust. It's our own lust that's resident within us. As Paul says in, in Romans chapter 7, he says, I find then this principle of evil is in me. You guys know this, right? You guys know this. That even, even for those of you who are born again, we still have that sin nature within us and we still struggle with that sin nature. We still struggle. Paul says, I do the very thing, what? That I hate. So we know this as Christians. We struggle with that with that sin nature. We talked a lot about this as we studied the book of 1 John uh, last year. What, what real Christians do is we agree with God about our sin. We say, we own it. Yeah. We, we come to the Lord and we, we own our own sin. You know, unbelievers, what they'll try to do is either deny that it is sin or hide it. This is what unbelievers do and some religious people. But the real Christian is called to come to the Lord and what? confess it and forsake it. And if we'll come and confess our sin, what does God promise to do? To 
forgive us. He's faithful and just. What does it mean He's faithful and just? He's going to keep that covenant He's made through the broken uh, body and blood of Christ. He's going to keep that covenant. He's faithful to that covenant. And He's going to keep that covenant. If you come to Him in confession through Jesus Christ, He's faithful to keep that covenant. Let me just read First John, a couple of verses from chapter uh, 1 and 2 here. We covered last year. If we say we have no sin, what? We are deceiving ourselves and we, we make God a liar. If anyone does, uh, does sin, what? We have an advocate with the Father. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us. God is calling all of His children to own their own sin and to come to Him in all humility and to confess it. That's what a Christian's called to do. We're not to try to blame anyone. We're not to try to explain it away. If we're going to obey the Lord, we come to Him and we confess the sin. And we allow Him to wash us and cleanse us. At verse 15 here, He changes the metaphor from hunting and fishing he, he changes the metaphor to childbirth. Look what he says. He said, if lust is, when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And this is where a lot of this thinking goes on. You, know? uh, you, can't, you don't stop sin at the point of behavior. Where do you stop sin? In your mind and in your heart. That's where you stop. You know, if a couple wants to have a child... You know, there's a lot of talk going on about that, right? There's a lot of planning going on about that. There's a lot of mental energy there. There's a lot of emotional energy there. There's a lot of planning going on. And this is the metaphor that James is using. That's the metaphor he's using. That your sin starts right here. And it starts right here. And if you don't defeat it in your mind, you're probably already beaten. If you don't defeat your sin in your mind... You're probably already beaten. You know, God came to, pardon me, Satan came to, to Eve and he made his accusations against God and God's Word. Eve started to what? What was the, what was the progression of Eve's sin? She started to think, well, wait a minute. Well, well, maybe Satan's right. Maybe God is holding out on me. Maybe I'm the victim here. <laughs> Isn't that the way men think? You know, maybe I'm the victim here. And so she begins to look at that, at that tree and she sees that it's good for food, the lust of the flesh. She sees that it's delightful to the eyes, the lust of the eyes. She sees that it's desirable to make one wise, the boastful pride of life. Man, she's already beaten. She hasn't grabbed the fruit yet, but she's done because she's, she's lost it in her thinking. She, she embraced bad theology, right? Right? She started thinking wrongly about God. She started thinking wrongly about herself. Next thing she's doing is disobeying the Lord. Friends, that's how sin will defeat you. If you're not, if you're not immersed in this, you are an easy mark for the adversary. You are an easy mark for the adversary. Screwtape is laughing to Wormwood about you and me when we claim to be Christians and we don't know this and we don't immerse ourselves in this and we don't study this and we don't meditate on this, we don't pray over this, the demons laugh. <laughs> they don't take our profession too serious. Because they know we don't have any power. We don't have any power of our own. 
apart from what God is giving us in His Word and through His Spirit. So what's the, what's the result of, of, uh, of this lust that's been conceived? A, a, a baby conceived is a baby what? Born. And if you're playing with sin in your mind, guess what? Sin's going to be born in your life. Friends, you can't play with sin. I think some of you, some of you think you can. <laughs> I'm an old guy. I'm 53 years old. You can't play with sin. I'm here to give testimony. You can't play with sin because it'll beat you every time. It'll beat you every time. It'll beat you every single time. So a child conceived is a child born. Once the lust has been conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. I love how the message paraphrases verse 15 here. It says, Lust gets pregnant and has a baby. Its name is sin. And sin grows up to adulthood and becomes a real killer. Friends, screw tape is right. If your mental habits haven't changed, nothing's changed. <laughs> if you're still thinking like the world, you have no power against your own sin nature and against the temptations of Satan. If you're not, if you're not bringing every thought captive to obedience to Christ, you're, you've got a big bullseye on your back. And look at verse 16. Do not be, be deceived, my beloved brethren. Do not be deceived. That's what James is saying. You can't think like the world and call yourself a Christian because you'll fail. You'll utterly fail. You'll utterly fail. Satan and his minions know that if your mental habits haven't changed, nothing has changed. And God says, do not be conformed to this world and how it thinks, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. God says, take every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus. And as the paraphrase, the message paraphrase says in 2 Corinthians 10, use your powerful God tools for smashing those warped philosophies that you feed into your mind when you watch the, the world media and the movies and listen to the world's music and you're just feeding your mind. And the message says, the message says to take your God tools. Now what I want to say is, what are your God tools? What are your God tools? Anybody got a God tool in here? Prayer? What else? Pardon me? Faith? Scripture? Anything else? You're doing great. Use your God tools. Come to church. Hear the Word preached. Find someone to be accountable to. Find a brother or sister to be accountable to. Don't forsake the, the assembling together uh, of, of the body. Participate in the body. Lean on your brothers and sisters. The Holy Spirit is, is in you. Use your powerful God tools. Use your powerful God tools to smash the lies of the world. I'm done. So I want to say, I want to say, if you're, if you're here uh, tonight and you're not a Christian, I want to say what Jesus said, His very first sermon, Jesus said, repent and believe. And that's what I say to you, unbeliever, tonight. If you're not a Christian, I say to you, I repeat the words of Jesus, repent and believe. You've heard the truth. This is the truth. We don't have invitations here, but repent and believe. And if you don't know what that's about, I'd be happy to talk to you about it. You call me. You come see me. You come talk to me after the service. We'll talk about it.
But unbeliever, you're covered with sin and you need the blood of Christ. You need the blood of Christ. And for you Christians here tonight, I just want to take a few minutes. I, I dare say in a, in a crowd this size, there's probably more than one of us, maybe a couple of us, that have sin in their life that they're not dealing with. And I am going to call you tonight to repent of that sin. I'm going to call you to confess that sin and to leave it here in this room and to not practice that sin anymore. You remember how, how miserable David was with his sin. You remember what he wrote in Psalm 31. He says, My eye and my soul and my body are wasting away because of why? Does anybody remember? My iniquity. He was miserable. But then he confessed. You remember? I'm just going to share these great words. This is biblical confession, okay? Psalm 51. You guys probably know it. Psalm 51. Listen to David's great confession. This is what I'm calling you to do before we come to the table tonight. I'm calling you to confess your sin, to get clean with God, and then come and celebrate that you are clean in Him. But listen to David, Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. Oh, man, according to His loving kindness. I love that. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Listen, Christian friend, is this your cry when it comes to your sin? You know, how, you know how serious your sin is? And is this your cry? Like David's cry? I love this. Cleanse me from my sin. And then he says this, Against you, Lord, against you only have I sinned. You know that your sin's against God preeminently. You might be sinning against your husband or your wife or your co-worker or your neighbor, but preeminently what? You're sinning against the Lord. Then David says, purify me, wash me, make me hear joy and gladness again. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Deliver me from my guilt, O God. That is Christian confession. That's what I'm calling you to tonight. If you need to confess your sin, you do it right there in your chair. Just between you and God. You do it right there in your chair. Adam's going to come play. He's going to come play. You, have, you spend some time with the Lord. And then uh, when you're ready, you come up. If, uh, if you've professed Christ and followed Him in believers' bad, baptism, you're welcome to participate in the Lord's Supper with us. You come up and take the bread and, and the cup. Go back to your seat. And uh, you wait there. And I'll stand at the... At, when Adam stops playing, I'll stand and I'll read a text. And then we'll partake of the elements. Okay? But spend some time. Christian friend, I'm calling you to joy. I'm calling you to happiness. Put the sin down. Put the sin down. Tonight, put it down. Whatever it is, put it down. Come and celebrate the fact that Jesus has cleansed you and He's removed your sin as far as the east is from the west. Let's celebrate that awesome truth tonight together.